Good morning, Chatty Kathy One Life. I'll give you a second. Good morning, One Life, and uh, it's good. We say I say this every time. I think one of us, whoever's speaking, says this every week. It is good to be with you. Um, and every week, it's a different kind of good. But once again, shocker, it's good. Um, If you're new to us, uh, this is not our normal setup, and if you haven't been here for Advent before, uh, we started this a few years ago, doing kind of a living room feel to uh, imbue more of the waiting space, more of the low-key, more of the um, stripped-back, countercultural, turning our attention elsewhere space. And I'm not going to lie, it's real weird to be sitting on a couch (laughs) I've never preached from this couch, uh, and you all feel very far away, um, which is new. My name is Martha, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I get the privilege of beginning this new sermon series and really this new season, uh, the season of Advent with you all. So to start us off, uh, would you pray with me? O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Lord, we need you, and we trust your promises that you are returning to us. You want to be reunited with us. Would you open our ears and eyes and hearts to hear what you have for us today as we wait for you? It's in your name. Amen. So today is the first Sunday of Advent, uh, these four weeks leading up to Christmas, four weeks that Christians around the world have observed for centuries. Um, And as a side note, Advent marks the beginning of the new year on the church calendar. Um, So the fact that our starting place is a waiting place, uh, a place of reorientation, is kind of fascinating theologically and uh, interpersonally. So... To help prime my gears for this series, uh, I went where so many of us go for answers, and that was to Google, um, to just see what they thought about it. And uh, the stock definition of Advent that came up was the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. Also, appearance, occurrence, dawn, or birth. And then Wikipedia added that uh, Advent is the anglicized version of the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. Um, And there's a slight difference here between arrival and coming, right? Arrival implies an event, a showing up, a beginning, something already being a reality. But coming implies the process, uh, an action of something on its way, something not yet being a reality as we understand it. And then, uh, thirdly, Wikipedia also uh, said, helpfully, that Advent is a time of expectant waiting and preparation for celebration of the Nativity of Jesus at Christmas. All of these words, arrival, coming, waiting, preparation, uh, they're so full of imagery and emotion, which we'll come back to in a bit. And again, the fact that we start a new year in the church calendar with waiting is profound. So uh, I moved on to do an image search. And Advent, the word Advent, gave me this. A 
million pictures of candles in reeds. Thank you, Google, very much. Um, so then I searched for waiting, and I got this. Images of people sitting alone on benches, often beside various forms of transit, train tracks, buses, the roadside, maybe beside the ocean. And the implication is uh, being at a standstill juxtaposed to transit is that you're not moving when you want to be. Uh, you're stuck. You're stalled out. So next, I clicked on this subcategory for GIFs. Are you familiar with these graphic interchange format files? They're like tiny, they're like digital flipbooks, like a few pictures together that tell you this little looping story. Um, and the top results of, of GIFs, which I couldn't get to turn into a slide, it's not there. Um, the top results were these split-second scenes from movies and TV shows and cartoon characters, most of which were drumming their fingers. Like the only, like it's somebody from The Simpsons drumming his fingers. Or it's uh, Sebastian the Crab drumming his back legs. Or um, the second most image that came up was uh, that of a spinning wheel loading. Familiar? Um, <laughs> ironic that technology was not on my team today. Um, but one of those spinning wheels that tell you this device is still thinking and in all likelihood aggravating you or me. Um, we don't like to wait. Even for the time that it takes this computer that fits in your pocket to find the one video clip or song track or news article among tens of hundreds of bazillions of them uh, and put it at your fingertips. And you have to wait two seconds. The nerve. All these gifts of drumming fingers started making me batty, so I went back to this page of images and still shots of waiting when two of the pictures caught my eye, maybe they've caught yours. One of this cat looking out a mail slot. It's coming up. Spinny wheel, shocker. This cat looking out a mail slot. And the second one was of this little girl looking out a window. While all the other images implied boredom, even some of those were cartoons of skeletons. They've been waiting so long. <coughs> so while the other images implied boredom, inactivity, time lost or wasted, these two images feel expectant, focused, hopeful, attentive, even active. They're sitting still, and yet there's action happening below the surface. So there's this juxtaposition, static versus dynamic, inactive versus active, bored versus expectant types of waiting. We could think of waiting as killing time, like we probably do in a waiting room, or we could think of waiting as a space, an opportunity to focus, making space to notice what arrives, who comes up the path, or what message is about to get dropped in your lap. As well as to notice then what comes up in the meantime while you're waiting. Boredom, longing, anxiety. For me this week, working on this sermon, it was restlessness, impatience, to the point of being infuriating. I wanted to kick stuff over and light it on fire all week. 
I'm over it. I'm over thinking about waiting. I'm over talking about waiting. I've done some crying this morning because of all the resistance in me to the existential space of waiting. But all these things that come up, they all tell you something. And I believe that they all invite something. For instance, the way we're not practicing communion with bread and juice this month, it may evoke a response in you, and intentionally so. And that response is worth paying attention to. But we've all experienced waiting in some sense, right? Whether it's existential, like I now have a master's degree and I'm not a job to go with it, or um, waiting for something to, beginning or to, to begin or to end, like an event, a wedding or a graduation, waiting for a phone call, waiting for an acceptance letter, waiting for test results, or even, this has got to be familiar to someone other than me, a batch of cookies in the oven. Like, get, come on, I can smell you, why can't I eat you? It's the worst. We face waiting on so many levels all the time. Or, here's another prime, timely example. At this time of year, there are two types of people. One is like my friend Ben. I have permission to use this. <laughs> Who has been listening to Christmas music since last Christmas. Uh, and you may see he has ornaments in his beard. Um, uh, and he posted this on the 25th with a, it's the 25th, happy Christmas. The fact that it was October, notwithstanding. <laughs> or, uh, so you've got the one hand, people like him, or people like me, who wait until after Thanksgiving to listen to Christmas music as God intended. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, and for me, uh, this one album for the last 10 years or so has been the first album I play literally on the drive home from wherever I've celebrated Christmas. This is Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God, uh, which he wrote 15 or so years ago. Uh, this compilation of songs that tell the story from the Old Testament, tracing events and themes up to Christ's birth. And uh, every year in November and December, he gets a little posse of his uh, musician friends from the Nashville area, and they do a tour through the Midwest and maybe into like Wisconsin or Texas or Florida. And when I used to live in Michigan, I would go. I'd try to go in Michigan and Indiana. Like, whatever was in driving distance, I would go uh, to experience it in person, not just by, on CD. Um, and, and years ago, he used to ask the audience when they, when they performed the Behold the Lamb of God concerts, uh, they asked the audience not to applaud each individual song, but to wait until the end so that the story could tell its story in one long, contiguous unit, one whole piece. Um, and it was hard to do, considering that the, the artistry and the craftsmanship and the songwriting itself, plus the talent of the performers, uh, it was hard to not clap, cheer, offer your thanks uh, at each song. But he wanted us to experience something beyond hearing pretty music. And our Advent series is geared toward that, hearing something beyond the surface of this season. Uh, we'll be spending these next four weeks in the book of Isaiah, not going through it chapter by chapter or even going in order, but looking at some of the texts that are commonly used during Advent. 
Advent readings and the different traditions of liturgies. Isaiah was a prophet in Judah during the 8th and 7th centuries BCE. He wrote part of the book, and there were probably one or two other writers as well. Uh, the first part of the book of Isaiah is a narrative about the prophet, uh, interspersed with some prophecies to the royal court of Judah. And then the second part contains poetic narrative about God's judgments and prophesied restoration of the people. And the, the whole book, in general, focuses on God's people and God's plan for them, uh, leading up to and during their exile while they were in, in captivity in Babylon, no longer living in the land that God had given them. So this book has loads of messages about waiting and prophecies for what they're waiting for. The name Isaiah itself means Yahweh saves. And that strikes me as what, a, what an interesting thing for your identity to be not just Yahweh saves, but the implication I need a savior. I need to be saved. And Yahweh will save. It is Yahweh who saves. For that to be your identity. For that to be how you sign your checks. That blows my mind. Uh, and the book of Isaiah is prominent in Christian liturgies for these four reasons. Isaiah is known as the prophet of hope and of new beginnings. He's the prophet of the compassion of God, a God uh, of mercy and comfort and consolation, so much like the Father that Jesus knows and describes in the New Testament. So much overlap. Thirdly, Isaiah was the first to articulate that the God of the Jews was the God of all people that God's kingdom extended beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem to all the corners of the earth. And fourthly, he's a prophet of peace and justice. That harmony among all people and compassion for the poor are hallmarks for God's presence. And that, that too, is heavily overlapped with uh, closely connected to Jesus' teachings. So today, our text, will be looking at Isaiah 64, uh, the tail end of 63 and 64, which I will read, and will somebody else will keep the slides moving. Isaiah 63, 16 through 7, 64, 9. You are our father, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while, while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you. You who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. 
So how then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our, fil- all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. In this chapter, the voice of the prophet is speaking to the Lord on behalf of the people. The tone is both entreating and confessional, naming both the truth that these people belong to God and the truth that you wouldn't know it by their actions. It's a national lament, a prayer for divine deliverance. The speaker names gets at this distance between God and the people and implicates both parties for contributing to that separation. For example, in verse 17, listen for fault. Who is to blame and who is expected to move? Isaiah 63:17. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. It sounds like it's Yahweh who has sent the people off track. Like, uh, we wandered from your ways, but you made us do it. We do not revere you, but you hardened our hearts. And if we're off in left field, it's because you sent us there. And yet the speaker then appeals to Yahweh to turn back. Return for the sake of your servants. We're over here, but we need you to return. My study Bible had a note on that word return in verse 17, sending me to Numbers 10.36, when Moses and the Israelites are in the wilderness near Mount Sinai, following the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It reads, Whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. And when, the, when Moses and the Israelites were out in the wilderness, this is prime time of exile, of separation, when the Israelites were between Egypt and the Promised Land. They're just waiting, following a box through the wilderness. Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. And this word, return, had a note too, pointing to Isaiah 52.8. Isaiah 52 is a Uh, promise to the people from the Lord that he will deliver them. And this will sound familiar. Verse 7 begins, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to God, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Here are two examples of the people of God being well aware of their need and finding hope in the promise of God's return to them. And this is catching me this time, that verse 7 again, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. 
the cat and the kid by the mail slot and by the window are the watchmen. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. What is that watchfulness like? Where does it come from? Or in the song we sang earlier, joy of every longing heart. What is the joy in longing? Side notes. Where's it going? The people of Israel in here in Isaiah 64, even their plea for God to return is an act of returning in itself. To appeal to God's earlier promises, uh, it's like the flip side of a coin with their confession. This motif of, we are God's but you wouldn't know it, repeats throughout the whole chapter. You are our Father, but we do not revere you. It's this appeal and confession. We are yours, but we are not called by your name. You did awesome things before, but we haven't seen that in a while. You come to the help of those who remember your ways, but we continue to sin against your ways. There is no God besides you, but no one here seeks you. In verse 7 of chapter 64, it says, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away. Yet you are our Father. This sounds a lot like the world we live in right now. I'm very familiar with my own prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I see the news. I hear about what happens around the world, in our own country, in our own city. And, and I don't know whether it's that the world is getting worse and meaner or I'm getting more aware of how mean we are. Mean-spirited. Uh, but it's heartbreaking. This is not what we were made for. No one calls on God's name or strives to lay hold of you. Yet you are our Father. And then in verse 8, I hear this appeal that God not abandon them. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And I've heard that verse before in terms of submitting to the Lord's control or sovereignty, like um, we are clay and that we do your bidding. You are good and you can mold us however you want. Um, and we, that feels good and we trust you uh, to say you are the potter and we're the clay. We submit to that. And we, yeah, we trust that you know what you're doing. But set in the rhythm of this motif of this whole chapter, I hear more of a, you started this. You are the potter, we are the clay, we're just sitting here waiting. You started this, you made us, we are yours. Don't leave us here on the wheel. Don't bail on us now. Please finish what you started, come back to us. You have every right to be angry because of our sin. We have sinned so much, but please don't remember our sins forever. And then the chapter ends with the words, Look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. The ones who are trying, the ones who are mean, the ones who can't see tomorrow. We are all your people. There are two hands in this rhythm. On the one hand, on the other hand, and they interact and they respond and they uh, react to each other. This very relational dynamic between the people of God and God. 
Both share fault for the distance that is separating them. And the speaker, the voice of the people, is calling for a return on both parts. Return that the, that the Lord would return to his people and that the people would return to the Lord. I hear this desire to be God's people again, not just in name only, but recognizably by their actions. This longing to be reunited, to be reconciled, to be close to God again. So to bring this back to the introduction about Advent, if waiting is more than being bored, then what action might Isaiah 64 suggest to us? I hear a prayer that prepares, a prayer of confession, a prayer of longing. What's something maybe that you need to say to God at this juncture, today, this season? What truth do you need to tell about your journey so far, your sense of where you are in relation to God or where God is in relation to you? And what do you want from God? Not like a vending machine or like Santa Claus, but as a creator, as a father. Or the action of asking God to return to his people, which in itself begins to turn back our hearts toward God. Or the action of asking God to move us from the bench where we've stalled out to the window where we are looking for God again to show up and do awesome things that we did not expect and to give us the eyes to see them. So back when I lived in Michigan and uh, was able to attend the Behold the Lamb of God tour, one of those times, uh, my best friend and I drove to Nashville for the big show when Andrew Peterson invites like 20 or 30 of his musician friends to put on the, the thing. Uh, and when, when my best friend and I drove down, the stage is just chock full of people, and it was in this mega church, just huge, just so much going on. And we're not clapping. Again, we're waiting for the the whole story to be told. There's a song toward the end, uh, and the first half of this song borrows the words of the Christmas hymn, While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks by Night, and Andy rearranged it in the music into a very slow, pedantic, tedious, almost a march. It just, like, you listen to this song, and you're just right here. The lyrics, the melody, shepherds doing their thing, and it's boring. Uh, great. It doesn't say it's boring, but that's what it feels like. And then the angels show up and say, fear not, and the, like, the notes go a little higher, and it gets a little interesting, but the rhythm stays right here. And the next thing you know, after the angels have said everything they need to say, fear not, and then all of a sudden, all the stops get pulled out, and everybody, and all the, and the lights, and the hallelujah, 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 Christ is born, and the music erupts, and it is all I could do to not sail out of my seat, and it's the sonic equivalent of angels coming through the roof, and you're like, I get it, I get it, I know what it feels like to be a shepherd sitting watching dumb sheep in the middle of the night, and I cannot fathom angels showing up and interrupting and changing the course of history. <laughs> 
I need that message right now. I need it for this year. I need it for this month. I need to know that the waiting is not the end of the story, but that there's a real, true, good, big God, and that the waiting makes us ready for it, ready to see it, ready to hear it. So I have some questions for you. Uh, for connection cards, or maybe just for taking home and thinking about. What is the experience of waiting like for you? Um, in the image searches that I did, uh, so many of the people sitting next to railroad tracks were women and or carrying umbrellas, and it was very sad. And so many of the gifts that were drumming fingers were men in business suits, and they were irritated. Uh, or like for me, my fight comes out, my restlessness. Uh, what is waiting like for you? Number two, what might you need to say to God today? And three, how might this community join you in your waiting? This is an upside-down space. The, the countercultural way of doing Christmas, of doing Advent, is an opposite dynamic to what the world, I don't have a better word for it, what everything else is going to sweep you into, which you are probably already feeling. Um, it could be a long month, or it could be a quick month, or it could be the exact month that God has for you, and whatever that may be that you are waiting for, longing for, needing to hear, needing to see. Uh, so if I could have the worship team come back up, I will close us in prayer. O oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Would you return to us in a very near and immediate way as we wait to celebrate the birth of Jesus, as we wait for the second coming of Jesus, would you return to us, even in the daily way, sitting on the hill, sitting by the window? Would you turn our hearts and our eyes toward you? Would you give us an expectancy? Give us a longing would you be near us in whatever comes up with that? And God, would you return? We trust you and we believe that you are good. And we love you. Amen.